0: 1 Samuel 17, and I'm reading in uh, the Christian Standard Bible. It's story time. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sukah in Judah, encamped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And if you ever have trouble with, you know, a sentence like that, you can just say, the Philistine gathered their forces for war in this one place, and they camp not between another place and a different place. It's just a way to say it. Saul and the men of you know, or you get to one of those genealogies, right, with a bunch of names and you're just like and then a bunch of dudes beget another bunch of dudes and then Jesus came. <laughs> well that's my wife often says that. Just say it with confidence is what she'll say. Just say it with confidence. <laughs> Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet nine inches tall. He wore a bronze helmet bronze-scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of the spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield-bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formation's why do you come out to line up in battle formation, he asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine. They lost their courage and were terrified. Now, David was the son of of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. During Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, Shammah, the third, and David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these 10 portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. There with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation, facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, Do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy? The armies of the living God. The troops told him about the offer, concluding, That is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why do you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done, protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, Don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, You can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, Yahweh, who rescued me from the paw of the lion, And the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go. And may Yahweh be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head. He had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes. He tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. And then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a ute, healthy, And handsome, he said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. And today, Yahweh will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, give the corpses give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth, and all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that Yahweh saves, for the battle is Yahweh's. He will hand you over to us. I wonder if you know why he said that. Now think of the storyline of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus.
1: Because, yeah, but not by sword, nor spear. But that Lord says. Like, once, like, it's foreshadowing. Like
0: Jesus, ah, Jesus I'm, th- I'm thinking, go back. Yeah. Oh, you're going back. I'm going back. I'm going, I'm saying, go back. Why did he say this? Where did he, that's not David's sentence. Um, you remember when, uh, when Israel's running from Egypt. and, you know, they're freaking out because they finally get out and the, the armies are starting to track them down, right? Why did you take us out of
1: Egypt? We had leeks and onions and stew and meat.
2: and you just It was so great, you know, when they whipped us and killed us for 400 years. Why
0: did you take us away? And Yahweh said to Moses, because right they're they're backed up against the Red Sea. Yeah. They had the pillar of fire. And, 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 uh, and smoke uh, guarding them but they're trapped what are we going to do and Yahweh says through Moses it is in quietness and strength be still it's in quietness for the battle is the Lord's
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's not by you're not going to fight this thing you yeah. just have to be quiet that is really hard to do. Yeah. That's really hard to do. <laughs> Isaiah picks up on that same thing. For it is in quietness and strength that that, that you'll be strong, that you'll have victory. And we think it's in agitation and <laughs> movement and energy and No, I have to chill. The battle is Yahweh's. He will hand you over to us. There's this confidence. He'd heard that story over and over again. I think I think that's where he's getting that from. He try, he'd seen it worked out in his own life. And now he trusts, like, I'm just going to keep leaning on my God. When the Philistine started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. He put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. And then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sha'aram road to Gath and Ekron. And when the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked, Abner, the commander of the army. Whose son is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as you live? I don't know. (laughs) The king said, find out. Find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. This is the word of God. It's a big chunk of text, fifty-eight verses. What is the author's one intended meaning and main point in the text? It's a little unfair to you. I understand. We're 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 doing this. We're doing this live.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. I think the main intended meaning is that the army. Jewish army was powerless. They had been humiliated for 40 days in a row (laughs) against an enemy that was on paper far superior to themselves that they could not overcome and they needed somebody on their side to step forward of which nobody did until the least likely candidate stepped forward and rescued them, which is, if if I believe correctly, a a typology, and we'll probably get into this later, what Jesus (laughs) did for us because he was the least likely method. They were were expecting a triumphal king, and it was something totally different that saved us and that's what happened here, if I get it right. I like
1: that, Roger.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's... So if we answer, if we, if we cut your answer up a little bit to some other parts of the questions, because um, you did a wonderful job summarizing that, if we stick at just the, the one intended meaning... I like how you said, "Yep, there's there's this candidate, there's this, um, you know." And if right, if we do if we do this, we do this kind of. <clears throat> this kind of thing, right? We also want to understand it's not the whole huge story, but we want to understand if this is First Samuel seventeen. What happened in First yeah, Samuel sixteen? knowing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was God's. appointed. He's already God's appointed man, and he's starting now to walk into into that reality. Mm-hmm. And so that it's true, it, the battle is Yahweh's, but who does Yahweh use? Okay. Who's the expression of that? And that's where Roger is going. Is that mm-hmm. here is this appointed man who's going to rescue God's people from his enemies? Well, that's, that's I thought was before when I yeah. <laughs> That's well, we're not there yet. And we're not there yet, but that's, but you're right. and I think it is, that is the, the storyline tool here is typology for us to see this foreshadowing. And if we even step up further into that larger storyline, right? It's what do we know about what, what line is and David going to create? And as I was if we go forward in the story.:
2: Thinking of that and using what we're talking about, every, you know, the Bible points to Jesus. And how, about how many sermons have I probably heard in the radio or just, and probably other people that always say, you're David and you go yes. out with your stones yes. of yes. all the, you slay your and you slay your giants. Yes. I'm like, that's not the point of the story. And that's not what is being told.
0: So let's so let's let's without, go there.
2: The, everything pointed to Jesus and the typology mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I think it could be easily missed, and you could go the other direction.
0: Right, right. So now, thank you, thank you so much for arguing the point of biblical theology, because you're right, right. Because that's what we said in the very beginning. If we don't if we don't understand these things, then we're going to wrongly, if we're not seeing it in the in the context of the larger story, which is so. First, First Samuel sixteen. How long are you going to mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn in ghosts and go. Send you, son of to Jesse of Bethlehem, because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. And the Lord said, Anoint him, for he is the one. And he takes oil, anoints him in the presence of his brothers, and the spirit of Yahweh comes powerfully on him from that day forward. Which is also a very important aspect of what you're pointing out when, when we see Jesus, who's going to be anointed powerfully with the Spirit before he goes into ministry. Yes? Yeah, take a little
1: bit different tact, although I understand, and just three simple words, God in charge, and I think of the Pentagon as big in Samuel, like you mentioned, or whether it's just simply uh, David going out there, God was in charge. I mean, even to even to have that crazy rock embedded in, in the part where the helmet is yeah. protected, right? We seem to understand in the temple, and for the strength of the throw to penetrate the temple like a bullet—that's <laughs> all pretty amazing. So
0: it's very hobbit-like. I, I, I think <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Those hobbits could whip a stone. It's very yeah. It's
1: so, in yeah. yeah, regardless yeah. of how yeah. how well
2: an amazing you can think what David did was to anybody to the most casual observer, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that it's quite obvious that God was in charge in that situation, and he takes he gets the glory um, regardless of uh, uh, how amazing uh, David being willing. God still did it through
0: David. Yeah. David so, trusted God. So yeah. Like before, you know, right. The yeah. Which there's all kinds of typology there as well. Yeah. So we've gone through the author's one intended meaning and main point in the text, where it falls in the biblical storyline, mm-hmm. how does it point to Jesus, typology. We've talked about that. So mm-hmm. let's, let's go to that spot where you just kind of ended up, Roger. How do I read this text through Jesus? What does it mean for us? So understanding it in that larger storyline, seeing David, if we look, right, one of the things we want to do is we want to look backwards and forwards from a place in the story to help us understand that bit of the story, which is what you did there. You, we went a little bit back to see where's David coming from and where is he falling in the trajectory of what God is doing. We could even go back and just read into like through the judges, through the prophets, and, and, and to see this, this begging for a king and all of that. And then we go forward in the trajectory to say, okay, well, he is, we know that it's going to be said of Jesus. He's the house and lineage of David. We see that this is really pointing to who he is. So if it's not, the point of the story isn't, um, I'm David and I'm you know, looking for the Goliath that I'm going to slay. And you know, my, what's my stone? What are my five p- pillars of life going to be? You know, the principles by which I will reign victorious in my life. If it's not that and we're seeing it through Jesus, then what is it? What is the story telling us in relationship to Jesus?
1: It's going to be a good outcome if we obey what God's telling us to do. (laughs) I wrote down, have a heart after God's heart, like David was, because he had a heart for God's heart, Mm -hmm. and David showed the strength of the armor of God in his life, and he didn't
0: about his glory or success of the Lord's cause See, and that's that's good I think those are some application, those are some ways of application yeah. let me put a finer point on it let's connect it to what what we heard from Jesus yeah. to the, the the guys on the road to Emmaus mm-hmm. and to the disciples when he's in the room before he ascends and he says and he takes them through all the scriptures yeah. and says how it so let's say Okay, so Jesus is here. What do you think Jesus would teach about this text that points to him? Because that's what he says, right? Like, you pour over the scriptures, they all point to me. So how would Jesus teach this text pointing to him, informing us about who he is? If the story of David, as Roger interpreted it, which I think is absolutely correct interpretation, is that God's people needed a king to protect them from evil and God's enemies, then how would Jesus teach that interpretation in relationship to himself? What do we learn? that that's him and that that's still, that's the role that he plays. That's still him. That what I need, it's, I, I'm not David, I need a David. And there may be enemies like there were enemies of Israel in the, in, the, in the presence of the Philistines. There may be enemies in my life, there may be enemies against God's people, there may be enemies to his cause, but what we all need is not merely us. We need that. We need God's man. We need God's king. That's how I think that would be a story that leads to Jesus. I, I think that could be.
2: I think that's true. And as I'm sitting here, and when I'm thinking ahead in the second Samuel, hmm. I'm like, where do you draw the line? Because how, how can you equate David and Bathsheba? yeah to anything of, of Christ because he was sinless and yet David had his faults.
0: Yeah, so if we went into Second Samuel and did this whole practice on that text? Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, because you... And I'm just... The wheels are kind of turning, but I, it's like, can you only take and point to this passage and what David did at that point as opposed to being David as, a, as a, an entire human being and then pointing as way typology to Christ because of the negatives that he did.
0: I I have a thought. And
2: I I
1: don't know the answer. Yeah, I I have a thought. I think it's actually a really good parallel because David, a tradesman from Bethlehem, comes and saves Israel. But as you mentioned, later in life, he falls off the wagon, which is just a perfect illustration of the best you have of humanity is this guy David, and he's still
0: yeah 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 and, and i and i think and to add just a bit to that if you if you take it up to the level so if you look at that piece because that's what i think this is what's super fun about about the bible is to keep all along the way with these dots that we keep going down and then back up and then down and then back up and down and then back up and and being in the depths helps us connect the overall dot and and then i have to keep reading the whole story so that i'm not losing the movement because i think when you go to second samuel when you start in the judges and then you go through all of the kings all of this is just building, like like we talked about during Holy Week, right? And and Jesus coming into Jerusalem, there was this longing and this expectation because, oh, we think it's, oh, he's not. And we think, oh, he's another failure. We think, oh, man, it's just not going to work. Like, there's this, is he finally the Messiah? Yeah. Right, because that's what starts to happen through, in the prophetic work is there's going to be the Messiah, this king, this anointed one, this son of man, son of God, who will come. And so in the larger story, it's like, um, would you call this, I'm not sure about this, would you call this in like, um, like not, like you have foils, you know, that kind of, that to the main, like, this is actually the main guy or the main character, the main woman that, like Bill's like, that was the one. And all these other were foils, to kind of really get you ready to see this, you know, hero or heroine in the story. And so I think that's part of, in God's, in God's story, right? And, and those are hard things to understand, yeah. right? Because like when we read about, in, in 1 Samuel 16, you know, when he says, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him king over Israel? We also know that, that God says, I regret I made Saul king. Yeah. What
1: do you do with that?
0: Yeah, what do you do with I that? I I regret. Wait, what do you mean you regret? Like if I say I regret something, you made a mistake. Oh yes, it's, I made a mistake. Boy, I really blew it there. Why did I do that? I'm really paying for it now. And and so the, there's this there's there's a, a way that God is writing the story, even that He knows that and. The only way that I know, I think I talked about this in, in first semester, so I'll answer the question. I didn't mean to bring up another problem. Um, the way that helps me, at least, is to see God as, uh, as author, director, and actor of the story. So he, he writes the story, so he's not surprised. Like, it's not when he says he regrets, it's not like, oh, I, I'm so surprised. I just, I so thought Saul was the guy. Like, He failed. So plan B, okay, I'm going to make sure David will be better. Like I'll pick him and I'll kind of make up for this bad choice that I had here. No, he wrote the story. He knew the whole story. Then he's directing the story along the way, right? And then he's an actor in the story as well. And in that moment, we know that God expresses anthropomorphically. He expresses emotions. And so he's playing a role in the story to say, That and he's genuinely sorry. I think for all kinds of reasons, because of Saul's failure as king.
2: And you could place that same thought on a lot of other characters.
0: Absolutely, right? So many, yeah, so many. Maybe Pharaoh. Yeah. So many. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 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 If you really wanted to, yes, you could. You could say that.
1: Not regret,
0: They only do evil continually. Yeah. <laughs> let's clean the earth. Alright, let's do go let's go one through, through one more quickly. one. Uh, Psalm one? Psalm, Psalm one. Yeah, they're still waiting for him to come. Boy, I've, I've never thought of that That's question really? that way. I, I, think, I think that in David's line, I, I think that there was an expectation. I think David believed that. I, I think there is a telescopic nature to prophecy. Um, so I don't think that even prophets always fully knew um, the extent at, which, uh, at what they were uttering. Like, think of it like mountain ranges. like I think they could see a certain set of implications of maybe something they were prophesying. And we know, looking back, that we can see these multiple, whether it's layers or it's, you know, oh, there's another range and another range and another range. There's this kind of telescoping effect of that, of that prophetic utterance. So I don't know fully. Maybe other scholars have better opinions of this. Um, I don't know fully but I think that when David received that promise I think when Solomon understood the instruction from David of you know continue in this way my son and God will be with you and this line the forever king is supposed to come through you I think I think there was a full expectation of that and I think even even the Magi right when they're when they're reading the scrolls and the documents of the Jewish people, they themselves, a Herod doesn't even understand. He doesn't even know the prophecy of where's the Messiah supposed... They have to tell him, who's Jewish, um, but has lost his connection with his Jewishness in the story, apparently. They have to tell him, well, from Bethlehem, <laughs> which is why then Herod sends in the, the kill squads. Yeah. Um, for all the, the kids under two so I, th- I think there was certainly a confidence that at least a forever king I I don't know what to degree to the particularity and granularity like oh you might be the one and I'm raising you that way I'm not sure how that worked out but yeah that's a great question
1: well,
0: well done to step into the story were
2: talking about um, the woman's daughter who did dance
0: that was sunday's sermon jonathan okay (laughs) Okay, sorry it's okay yeah
1: kind of like so like that the question that comes to my mind was did they think
2: that out with her daughter did they try to make her plan this dance to where it would seduce them did they know what that seduction would do no but they did they know that seduction works yes they might have there's a lot of does god use these situations yes he does yeah that's There's a evil situation God
0: has used uh, mm. to, yeah to that's a whole other conversation okay, that um, we should probably just move on but <laughs> uh, but yes, that you're now you're kind of going into how does yeah evil and sovereignty of God and that's a whole other cla cl- or a semester <laughs> <laughs> psalm psalm one um The blessings of someone who has not walked by the counsel of the faithless or stood on the way of wrongdoers or lived in the settlement of the arrogant. Happy are they. Rather, is delight... um, Oh, excuse me, I'm reading wrong translation. Sorry. I was reading Golden Gay. Um, Here's here's CSB. How, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners... Or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in Yahweh's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 4. Yahweh watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. So we have four questions. What is the author's intended meaning or main point in this text? To show the contrast between godliness and evil. Hmm. Literally just contrast. hmm Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, uh, there's an old, this was years ago, there was a, um, I think it was Matthias Media had a track called Two Ways to Live. And I feel like that'd be a a great uh, description of Psalm 1. It's Two Ways to Live. Um, You can be tapped into God's living and nourishing words and instructions and find the way of happiness, delight, prosperity, flourishing, health. Vigor, resiliency, the protective oversight from the God of the universe. Or you can reject all of that and stand in judgment. Where does this text fall in the biblical storyline? This is a little bit of a harder question. I think it's David. David. Yeah. Um, it, you know, we don't we don't know with certainty. Most scholars, uh, and it's been a while since I studied, I preached on Psalm 1 years ago. But I think most scholars think that, you know, we start, is it Psalm 3? Psalm 3 is yeah, Psalm 3 is where we start getting David. I think most scholars think that 1 and 2 are also of David. And 1 and 2 are really, they're almost one, like some even think it's just one song that's open. It's both... It's both the beginning of and the introduction to the Psalter. So there's there's kind of a layer here, I think, of meaning that, that it is what Corey said. And it's also, actually, everything that you're about to read is going to unpack, really. It's a description of not only Psalm 1, but the Psalter. The Psalter is about, there's these two ma- massive pathways in which to live. Um, so... The where this falls in the biblical storyline is a bit tougher with the psalms because the psalms encompass a thousand years a thousand years psalm psalm 90 is a prayer of moses the man of god so it probably dates to about 1400 bc psalm 137 begins with the line by the waters of babylon there we sat and wept then we remembered Zion, which light, likely dates that to the post-exilic era, and most scholars believe is probably written around 400 BC. So it, it encompasses the Psalter about a thousand years. That's where it so it falls all over the biblical storyline. It's a, it's a collection written by various authors, so it's not one author. Like I've said, to you what's the author's one intended meaning? Well, the Psalter as a whole. It's, it's of David, of Asaph, of Solomon, of the sons of Korah. They cover many types of genres, just as we have many various song genres today. So we've got hymn, lament, song of thanksgiving, country western, and all of it. I mean, it's just all there in this altar, right? <laughs> and while it may be that there are many objectives or aims that you have for the Psalms as a whole, I like, um, so one of my favorite uh, Hebrew scholars is... Um, a guy named uh, Mark Futado, who, who teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary. And he's got a, a great little book on how to, how to read the Psalms. And um, he says, I think it fair to summarize the instruction provided by the book of Psalms in three words. You'll like this, Bruce. Our God reigns. As we grow in believing this truth and in keeping the divine principles taught in the book of Psalms, we grow in experiencing the abundant life so graciously provided by our King. So that the purpose of the Psalms then becomes to instruct God's people in how to experience the abundant life for which God has created and redeemed them. And experience is a large part of the Psalms, right? So it's not merely this, There's other parts, other genres in the scriptures and in the storyline of the Bible that that are teaching you kind of like this history and they're teaching you propositional truths and doctrines in, in these concrete guidelines, the Psalms are massively experiential in all different kinds, of, whether it's praise or lament and all the emotions that we see there. John Calvin said of the Psalter, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the human soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. That's what the Holy Spirit has drawn together and inspired the writers of the Psalms to do. So that, I think a tremendous word of counsel to you that you should write in the front of your Bible to remind you is if you are having difficulty getting close and feeling the presence of God, read five psalms a day. Mm -hmm. Just start reading five psalms a day. Just do that. It will change you. It will. This collection was put together under God by the Spirit to help us. And as Jesus himself said in the text, right, we go back to Luke. <laughs> he said the Psalms, everything written about me in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there are things written here about Jesus. As we saw in Holy Week, right? He quoted. We saw him, quote, in just the story we covered, Psalm 22 and Psalm 31. Which made me think, Roger, it would be great to have a discussion. Because in 22, it's of David and... There's all this conversation, I'm a worm, I'm a man, all this failure. To what degree is Jesus identifying, not identifying? He's taking that psalm on his lips. What does that look like? What's in his head? That would be an interesting conversation and study together. Um, but how, therefore, if that's true, so there's a little bit about you know where it falls in the storyline, kind of how I think it functions in the storyline of the Bible. How does this text, our question, how does this text point to Jesus
2: right there in verse 1 it talks about I mean we know that all people are sinful and wicked mm-hmm. at the core and that was true in whatever date Psalm 1 was written mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: and it's true today at the time Psalm 1 was written the only way for someone to be happy and to overcome that was to follow the law because that's what they had Today, we have Jesus who, when he stands between us and God, God sees us as spotless and, mm-hmm. and without sin because of what Jesus did. So we are truly able to live Psalm 1. That I believe up until Christ came, they couldn't truly live Psalm 1 because they only had the law. So we can truly be happy under Christ. And so that's where Christ, I think, comes into this psalm. Is he's the only way for this to be lived.
0: So I think that's a really good answer to question number four, would be my opinion. Like, how do I read this through Jesus? Okay. Right? Because I think that's what you're doing. You're saying, how does Jesus inform my application understanding of this psalm to my life now? And, it, and this could be very connected, but how might this text point to Jesus? Maybe then we need Jesus for that sin,
1: isn't it? I got Psalm 1 does not merely call us to the fruitful behavior of avoiding sin's path and dividing to the Lord's law, but it points to the one who did those things on our
0: behalf. That uh, was, was in my Bible. Yeah, so I like that. in that way, are you. Um, so, one thought I had is that how it could point to Jesus is Jesus could be the man. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, I shouldn't say man because happy is the one. I'm thinking ESV in my head, it's happy is the man. Um, I, I like this translation, I think it's better. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advance of the way? Like, it could point to Jesus. Like, that. I, in, in, in that, it's a, just a finer point of the answer, Roger. I think you're saying Jesus is the one. And I just want to insert him and go, Yes, he's the only one who could not walk in the advice of the wicked and stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. He didn't. He didn't do that. And another way that I could that it maybe could point to Jesus. And this could be a bit of a stretch. And these these questions won't. You know, sometimes people go, "I just don't know that I can get there from this text specifically, this sentence, or right." But but it made me think of John fourteen. You know, I. My delight is in Yahweh's instruction. I am then like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears the fruits and seeds. Right, like and I'm I'm sinking my roots. Nehemiah and I studied this this psalm last night at supper. Like I'm sinking my roots into the word here, right? It's it's his law, he med his instruction, he meditates on it day and night. Jesus says in John 14, I am the vine. You are the branches. I have to be, you have to be rooted and connected to, abide in me, and I in you, for the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. So there's a sense in which it, it points to Jesus in that way, and who knows, maybe Jesus has someone in his head and says, I'm going to give you a different metaphor. Yeah, Bruce. So I uh, was also, you
1: talked about hearing sermons about certain things a while ago, like.
0: Yeah. So that, yeah, he's uh, that man. Yeah. He becomes the prototypical man of Psalm 1. Um, yeah. All right. Good job working through the questions on some texts. Uh, so, I'm going to give you a choice. Our last class of biblical theology is next week. And. Um, I have more material than one week. And so I have, if if you wanted to, so we're in this section, if, if some of you still have this old thing that I passed out like at the very beginning and then I think about at the midway point. Um, so we're in the section putting the text to work. That's what we're trying to do here, like a little lab. So the, the next little section of text that I have would be Proverbs, Isaiah, and Nehemiah or move out of the first testament to the second testament we could do luke john colossians if you had a choice to do which threesome would you want to do next week luke john colossians since we did one first testament trio we'll do a new a new testament trio yeah if you want proverbs just buy my book <laughs> shameless plug <laughs> I don't make any money from the book, so if it makes you feel any better, <laughs> it all it all goes to Grace. All the money is going to Grace. So, um, if you buy the book, then you're just giving money to the church. Um, all right, Roger, would you close us in prayer?
2: Sure. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to come here on Wednesday night and to be challenged faith and in our understanding of scripture and to uh, have our eyes opened anew to things that we may not thought of. Uh, Lord, help us to remember and to take this away from us so that it's, or with us so that we can study scripture with, uh, with, a, with a fresh set of eyes in ways that we may not have before. Be with us in our activities of the following week and bring us back together next week and we thank you In Jesus'
0: name, amen. Amen. And hey, y'all, just uh, one of your classmates here, as it were, Roger, is, uh, I I think you've heard and seen Roger and George in in previous weeks get up and talk about Kairos ministry. That weekend starts early, early, early tomorrow morning and goes through Sunday. And so there's going to be a whole team reaching to people, in prison, and there's about 24 25 prisoners. Is that there
2: will be 24 going through the program, and then a six six of them who have before who will be helping us? So there'll be okay 30 inmates and 24 free world people, of which of our church, George Hill, myself, Ezra Meyer, and Gary Gibbis. Nice.
0: So just in the prison all weekend, I, it'd be great if y'all would, and if you're listening yeah, to this podcast. Before, yes, if you could be praying for that and that there would be people who don't know Jesus who would grow one step closer to Jesus. So and we look forward to hearing a report at some point at a grace service. It'll be great to hear how that went. All right, love you guys. God bless you.